It was 1968 and Jill Scott was 13 years old. At home with her mum and dad in Stockport, she heard Enoch Powell's infamous Rivers of Blood speech. I thought about including a clip here of part of his speech, but racist bile like this deserves to remain in the dustbin of history. So here's a sound clip of an angry man instead. I remember Enoch Powell's Rivers of Blood speech, and I remember seeing the way that it was kind of reported in some of the tabloids and seeing the way it was reported again in The Guardian and don't really have memories that much of watching the news on TV because we didn't get a television till I was quite a bit older. But I do remember how appalled my mum and dad were at this speech and how watching Enoch Powell, you know, he was like a devil, you know, to a sort of a younger person, the way he came across and the kind of hatred. And it was a frightening speech, actually. But this was the 60s, and Enoch Powell was only one small part of what was going on. There were movements mounting in opposition to racism, as well as the Vietnam War. Protest music was filling the airwaves, and power was growing. Behind that power were young people. Welcome to Rebel Women, a podcast about history's troublemakers. I'm Esther Freeman, and for the next few weeks, I'll bring you previously unheard stories about amazing women who've changed society. To make sure you don't miss an episode, please subscribe. And if you like what you hear, give us a rating and a review. Even better, share it with your friends. This is our fourth series, and it is a special one, as the stories come from the Museum of Youth Culture archives. So my name is Lisa. I work for the Museum of Youth Culture, where I am the Archive Projects Manager. The Museum of Youth Culture is an emerging museum that celebrates and preserves youth culture over the past hundred years, using photography, ephemera and personal stories. The bulk of our collections focuses on that kind of teenage adolescent experience when we're starting to take those first steps towards adulthood and getting our independence, being able to go away on the weekend and not be reliant on your family anymore. So it really starts to kick in around like age 12, you know, 11, 12 was probably the younger end. Um, But then we take it up all the way into early 20s, you know, maybe when people leave school, if they go to university, that side of things. But if they go into work for the first time looking at that. um, So so the bulk of people in the collections, I would say, are in that kind of 15-year time span. But the reality is people come across things and get involved things at all ages. And we don't want to exclude people for any reason you know this is we try and take a really open approach you know some people find the subculture and are part of it for the rest of their life so we've got photographs of them in their 60s and they're still going to dances and they're still dressed in the part some people discover things later in life they have that second youth or they kind of come at it from a different angle and that's still just as valid so we're looking both at the experiences of being a teenager, but also looking at, I guess, the more cultural elements that come out of young people that have a much wider cultural impact. In 2020, I was approached by Lisa to collect 10 stories about women activists and youth culture for their project Growing Up in Britain. As a museum, we were working with this amazing photographic archive for a really long time, but arguably the biggest change in our journey to becoming a museum of youth culture was launching our Grown Up in Britain campaign. Uh, And it came out of this discussion around what is the future museum going to look like? How do we want to tell the story of teenage life? And how can we best do that? 
And our photographers are amazing. They tell these kind of really evocative pictures about a time and place. Um, and, and they're often shot by young people learning their trade by photographing their friends, their family, or the scenes that they're involved with. But they don't tell the whole picture. And that's actually quite a big brief to try and say that we're trying to collect and tell 100 years of youth culture. So what we started doing in 2019 is we started inviting the public to send in their photographs and their stories of growing up with the idea that everyone's been young so everyone can be part of the Museum of Youth Culture. And it's a really nice way to uh, open up the museum and build a museum from the ground up rather than us saying this is what youth culture is. We're actually letting people tell that story for themselves. But it's also a great passport with which to travel across the UK uh, and meet lots of people and really expand out of our London bubble because we've always been based in London. Now, initially, setting the record straight was kind of a really big project to kind of uh, push Grown Up in Britain forward for the first time. And it was going to look at traveling across the UK and looking at underrepresented communities in the museum's collections. We got the funding in February 2020. Um, and so uh, we started planning and then the lockdown hit. So that idea of traveling across the UK just wasn't possible. So we went back to the drawing board and we, were how, we still have the same aim. We want to expand the collections. We want to look at what stories are underrepresented in our collections. And we want to find exciting ways of collecting those stories. That's about working collaboratively. Lisa commissioned 10 oral historians in total, covering the wide range of stories from 80s and 90s Asian underground music scene to black women and subcultures. And of course, me. It's such a rich part of our social history. And I think wherever you look in terms of society and culture, um, young people have had a huge impact. Um, you know, it's often young people that are pushing things forward, especially in terms of technology, music, fashion, social issues. And that doesn't necessarily get recognized all the time. But also it's a really inclusive way to look at our social history and our contemporary and recent history. Everyone has been young uh, and actually looking through a teenage lens at uh, how life has changed is actually really interesting because young people are always responding to what's going on at the time. So you can actually get a really good, I guess, more traditional historical narrative around Britain um, by looking at youth culture. But it's a story that everyone can have a say in and everyone can share their stories in. I couldn't agree more. Anyway, back to Jill. Well, it's quite interesting, really, because my brother, who was born a year before me in 1954, was born the year that rationing officially stopped after the Second World War. So it was a time when people had very little money. Um, I remember kind of mum and dad sort of making, instead of buying chest of drawers, using like boxes that fruit came in and putting little curtains across for us to put our kind of bits and bobs in. So we didn't, we didn't have a lot of material things and we didn't used to buy clothes much we used to have clothes made we used to pass clothes on and we used to sort of cut the toes out of our sandals so that they would last longer as our feet grew so we did have a lot of money but actually compared with quite a few people we were fairly comfortably off
parents weren't the type to take part in protests, but that's not to say they weren't political. So my parents really weren't, they weren't political activists, but they had very strong views. For example, my dad was a conscientious objector. So he was a pacifist, although it's quite interesting because he said as he grew older, he wonders whether he would have taken the same stance that he did because he was only 17 at the time when he said, you know, that he was a conscientious objector. His, his dad, my granddad, had been in the First World War and witnessed horrendous sights and he sent his two sons to a Quaker school so um, my dad was very influenced by the teachings of Gandhi. So he was he was very much a sort of pacifist. So we had this kind of anti-war, but not in a taking to the streets kind of way. But dad was just very, very kind of passionate in his views about humanitarian issues and, and anti-war. So I think, you know, that that was always there in the background. And my mum... You see, he came from a more middle-class background, my dad. My mum came from a very working-class background in the Lancashire Cotton Towns. And she was the first in her... She didn't go to university. She went to what was a a teacher training college. But the more I kind of think about my mum, and we move into this period of the 60s that you've asked about, I realise that she was very political. She wasn't an activist as such, but a lot of remembering conversations with her showed just how political she was because they were always Labour voters and um, they also had this kind of non-conformist religious background, which is in itself quite radical. So she she had, you know, those views. So you had the kind of more liberal kind of pacifism of my dad, if you like, with this more radical um, religious, but also you would say socialist, As a teenager growing up in the 60s, she could see so much change going on around her. I was watching it from afar, but feeling very strongly in support of them, but not that I could support them. I don't think I ever thought, no, I want to go out on the street. I hadn't got to that because the community I grew up with wasn't that kind of community, I suppose, where people went out on the streets. I'd never seen anything like it. And I just thought, well, that, I remember thinking, that's a really really powerful way to express how you feel about something politically that's happening. So I think the Vietnam War was a, was a massive, a massive thing because it just clearly that the longer it went on, you just realised might of America just kind of jackbooting into a, a country like Vietnam, the unfairness of it. And I remember the boxer, I don't know if he was Cassius Clay or Muhammad Ali, at that point refusing to fight and just thinking, gosh, you know, people feel really strongly about this and and being quite inspired, if you like, by the way that people were so passionate and would take action that could be seen to be controversial by some people. And it really did have a major impact on me. Jill was too young to be marching through the streets, but she was expanding her mind in other ways. I was, I think this is a bit of a northern thing, actually, Esther. (laughs) I was very into soul music. Mm. 
people probably, I don't know if many people, young people would have heard of Northern Soul, but we were very into Tamla Motown music, my, me and my group of friends. Um, and Northern Soul music was something that kind of, it was like the lesser known Tamla Motown song. So it was very much dance, dancing to music. I would listen to kind of these protest songs, but I was never into rock. I was never into rock music. I, I saw it as a very male thing for some reason. I, I wasn't into it, but I was very... And then there was kind of out of kind of soul music, ska music developed, which was the sort of black and white, the mixture of kind of um, groups with black and white musicians in. So I was always very much into that kind of music. I still love that music now. I think people do. But that was really the kind of music that we would go every Friday night to the local youth club and just dance. As the 60s merged into the 70s, the mood began to change. Very violent here in the 70s, there's a lot of football hooliganism. I do remember kind of being, because Manchester's a big area for football, as you can imagine, and I just remember that we would have some of these discos that we went to at youth clubs, fights would break out, and, and people would come in from different areas occasionally, not very often. And I just remember the kind of the violence that seemed to be in the air in the 70s, which was, again, quite frightening. And I think punk music sort of took away, you know, kind of took some of that violence into its, its music, which was quite interesting, really. In 1975, Jill left Stockport, heading to Bristol for university. I, I was very into sort of punk music at the time as well, because it was so angry and anarchist. And, of course, well... I suppose in the early 70s, Margaret Thatcher was the education minister. I know this was about 1971, so this was before I went to university, but she became the education minister. And my mum, who was a teacher at the time, absolutely hated her, but she also had this nickname, uh, Mark, the Thatcher the Milk Snatcher. Yeah. Took away free school milk. So I do remember there was a lot of kind of anger building up in the 70s. Um, the 60s was much more kind of massive protests and big movements and things, but there was more kind of, it felt like there was more sort of anarchy in the air. Jill channeled some of her anger into politics. A lot of my politics actually started with, if you like, anti-racism, because uh, there was a lot of trouble at the time about Barclays Bank um, they had kind of investments in South Africa and South Africa at the time was obviously in the depths of the apartheid uh, regime. And there were protests in Bristol outside Barclays Bank. And so I, that was the first time I ever sort of joined in any protest. And I remember <laughs> one of our housemates had an account with Barclays. And so we, we sort of made her <laughs> go into Barclays Bank and close her account. So we, we sort of made this, you know, there was this event where we were all protesting, but my friend Sheila, who was quite a timid person really, but she did it. She went in and like closed her account down, but it was a symbol. You can imagine if it was today, there'd be lots of photos and heaven knows what, but yes, she did that. And then 
I went to the first ever Rock Against Racism concert in Victoria Park. There was coach loads and we came down to East London and there was this massive kind so of... So you, you came from Bristol to East London? In the yes, coach. yeah, in the coach. There was a big kind of march, ended up with this concert, massive concert. Um, it was an amazing event. So that was the first big event that I ever... Um, I'd been to concerts before, but this was highly political. And um, can you remember the bands that were playing? Tom Robinson. Yeah. Do you remember Tom Robinson? Well, he's on Six Music now, is it? That's yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. 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 So that was, it was a, a fantastic day. I remember, you know, the sort of group of us went down and um, I don't think we realised that it was, it was such a big event and it would sort of grow, really. We just thought we've got to go down and... Like I said, it came off the back of all these Barclays Bank protests. And it was a great feeling because there were so many, mainly young people there. Um, I go on protests now and a lot of them are like my age. Yeah. So I think a lot of people were cutting their teeth in the sort of protest movement kind of roundabout then, actually. Well, definitely were. Yeah, so that that was the first major protest I, I ever attended and it. You know, and you just kind of feel so powerful. Um, you know, you hear speeches, you hear music, and you think you can change the world. Of course, it doesn't necessarily work out that way, but you do realise that there's a solidarity out there and that, you know, the more people get together, the more confidence they have and the bigger impact eventually you'll make. But I do remember thinking that young people can, we can change the world. After Bristol, Jill did a teacher training course in Nottingham and then moved to London for her first job. I got my first teaching job in London. In... Oh, so that's what brings you to London. Yeah, this is what yeah, brings okay. me to London, the London Borough of Bread. It was highly political. There were people in the school who I'm still friends with who were very political um, through the union, through the trade union and some of them through the local Labour Party. But we used to have, just for our local NUT, it was the NUT then, NUT meetings, we had to hire out Brent Town Hall and it was standing room only. And then, of course, you have the miners' strike bang in the middle of this. Massive stand-up browsing staff rooms about it. What it, were the rounds about? Oh, to be honest, it would be a minority of people who thought the miners were thugs. And then oh, okay. us would... yeah kind of say, well, look what the police are doing. But we we would have constant collections with a bucket. We would go out with a bucket. We were doing running for the miners. We were greeting miners' families coming down. It was it was a massive thing, the miners' strike. It was terrible the way the communities were just broken up. The, and again, Thatcher was so hated. And I just remember being on strike quite a lot of the time, not all the time by any means but there was a lot of activity and action and again a feeling of power I, I seem to have gone through my early years feeling very powerful actually <laughs> massive protests and it was there was students sort of activity around the YTS scheme as well so students were Able. Were you involved in that at all? Or? Well, I remember kind of a lot of our students went on the protest and I remember they said, do you think we should go, Miss? And I said, well, it's not really for me to say. 
Although, you know, I wanted to say you should, but it was a very difficult one. But again, this sort of sense of of power that maybe because I was just surrounded by people who felt the same way as me, that again, you felt we can, we can do this. But I do think under the years of Thatcherism at the end of the miners' strike had a profound effect on, if you like, activists' morale. No, it's not. We can't change things. It's, they've got us, you know, the state has got us. Um, so, so that, that, is that where the, you feel the optimism the, and the strength that you felt before ended? Yeah, in many ways. I don't think it ended quite, but I, th- I do feel there was a massive turning point. Jill has now retired from teaching, but remains a committed activist and focused on the needs of young people. And I think for young people, you know, they have a right to hear about the history of struggle. And I just feel that it's kind of been taken away from them a bit at the moment. Certainly the way this government would like the curriculum to be. And I just think we've got to find ways constantly to look at how we show people, how we show young people about the struggles that have happened and the struggles that are still happening I do think young people need to feel the power that we felt when we were young. And I just hope that they get the opportunity and they have the courage and, you know, within their own ranks, the leadership to to kind of take them forward because the establishment is scared stiff of young people. Culture is working towards setting up a permanent space in Birmingham, a national museum telling the story of youth culture in Britain. While we wait for that to be completed, you can visit their current exhibition, Growing Up in Britain, A Hundred Years of Teenage Kicks, which is on until the 12th of February 2023 at the Herbert Art Gallery and Museum in Coventry. If you have stories you want to submit to the Museum of Youth Culture, see the show notes for a link to their website. You can also find them on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Join us next time on Rebel Women for more stories of rebellious youth.